I wanted to play football. I didn't say I wanted to be a professional footballer. Sport was super interesting. It was super um, important to me. But I wanted to live a full life. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Okay, so now me and me, Z and Kevil are joined by Permi Duty. Now, Permi, Permi, first of all, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. And whereabouts on this beautiful planet are you right now? I'm, I'm in the beautiful Basel in Switzerland, where I've been living for 15 years. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to start with Bend It Like Beckham, if I may, because certain people, when your name's mentioned, they say Bend It Like Beckham is partly based on your story. What's the truth behind that? How much of that is true? Is it just the fact that you're an Asian footballer around the same time? Yeah, it's actually, if it's a story about anybody, it's a story about Gurinder. Um, She was using the topic of football. Um, this is Gurinda Chowder, who's the director uh, yes. and the producer, yeah, yeah. or just the director? I can't remember yet. Um, both for that movie. So I mean, so we met and we spoke uh, a lot before the movie. They actually wanted me to be um, in the movie as uh, Parminda's legs, uh, but, <laughs> but but I mean, of course, it was very. I mean, it's not an autobiography. Um, it follows. She, she was exploring her own themes, and um, we spoke a lot about um, life as an Asian, trying to do what you want when you're a woman. But it's and a lot of the things have happened in my life. But it's not an autobiography. Okay, um, so you were just you. It's, it's, it's just you, topics. You're an themes. inspiration and for part of it. Then okay, cool. All right. So you, I mean, the first question is. I was I rewatched the film recently and I was quite impressed with Parminda, their skills and Kira Knightley as well. Their skills actually seem quite good. So it, why were your legs not involved in the film? Was that because <laughs> they weren't needed or I uh, no 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 because actually they used somebody else's legs. And uh, and actually the funny thing, the reason I decided not to be the legs, it's so close to my life. Um it was it was too strange for me, it was too close. So why do I want to be? You wouldn't be speaking to me now. As a woman who had been a professional footballer, you might be speaking to me now saying, you were the legs in Bendy Lebeckham. And uh, I thought, I'm more than a pair of legs. It was too close. It, it, was, it was just too close to life. So then it was really strange for me. It was strange anyway, meeting Paminda and talking to Gorinda about the story and reactions and things, having lived it. So it was all a little bit too close. So when it came to, and I felt more and more uncomfortable. So as it got to the filming and they called me about the filming, I said, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be away. And I went to New Zealand to see my sister. And then they got somebody else to play the legs. And the funny thing was then I came back and I was in a summer tournament. And the woman whose legs had used, I was playing her team. I had no idea what happened in the end. And then, some, and then I think this woman had said that 
she played Lex in Bandit Lab Beckham. And she spent the entire match trying to take me out. It was hilarious. I thought, this is like a battle of the legs for people who were supposed to be in Bandit Lab Beckham. And we beat them, and that's all we needed to do. But it was really, it was really bizarre. They got some more legs in the end. Right. Fair enough. Just as an aside, one of my friends, you know, you know the bill, the opening scene, it, it ends with a pair of coppers walking away down the street. What, are they your legs? No, they're not my legs. I was just going to say, one of my friends, he is those legs. So those legs, yeah. So now I, well, I kind of know one and a half famous pairs of legs, but there you go. Um, all right, so, so tell us about you then. Where did, where did you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Was that in sort of West London, Hounslow, South or where? It was, it was um, um, Hounslow. And then okay. we went to Preston um, in the north uh, when I was very young. And I grew up there. I came back to London. And, and it's interesting, I think, had we stayed I, was, I grew up always being the only Indian, or, or just of one or two, uh, which really defined who I was. It would have been interesting had we not left London when there was a, and to have grown up within a community, um, I think. So when, when did you come back? How old were you when you came back from Preston? 18. 18. Okay, so I'm assuming you'd started playing football, all of that already up north, yeah? I had, I, I played as a kid, but then there weren't really many opportunities. And the interesting thing was... Um, Without giving away your age, what sort of time are we talking about? I grew up in the 70s. And, uh, <laughs> and then, no, so I, I was playing football. And the, the funny thing was, I wasn't that good. I loved football. And so when I came to university, I, I was a badminton player. And sports, I mean, I played every sport I could, but there wasn't that many opportunities to play football. And when I came to university, I remember going to play badminton. And it was strange because I, growing up in Preston, where you're one of very few um, Indians, always feeling like an outsider, always feeling having to prove yourself with everything, not quite being accepted. And I went to, I went to play badminton and I went with a friend of mine. And it was strange. It was an English friend. And they weren't treating her so well because she wasn't so good. And they were treating me, they were being very nice to me. And I wasn't used to that. And I remember leaving feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And I thought sport had always been my in, my way of connecting with people. And so I thought, how can I, go, how can I play in this team? Because they're accepting me because I'm a good player, but they were not so nice to my friend. I didn't feel very comfortable because sport was supposed to be about inclusivity and acceptance. And as I was walking back to my apartment, I walked past a poster for women's football. And I remember thinking that you know, I used to love playing women's football, but I, I wasn't very good. And as an Asian, you know, we had to um, excel at education and things. And it was always about doing things you were good at. And badminton was my sport. And I remember feeling really liberated when I thought, I don't care that I'm rubbish at football. I love it. I'm going to give up badminton because the club is not the spirit that I believe and I will play football. So I went back to play football and I wasn't even sure when I went if I would even remember how to kick a ball properly. But somehow in all of that period, because I'd watched a lot of football, I loved football, I played lots of other sports, I, I was far better than um, I'd be. Um, okay. My brother always used to say, and it was a very philosophical comment that he made, I don't think he realised, but I remember once he said, um, you don't need opposition, you always tackle yourself. And 
because because he would just sort of stand next to me as I'm trying to do lots of fancy things and I would fall over the ball or something. But it's actually a very philosophical thing to say about life, I thought. <laughs> but, uh, and it was kind of true. So I came back to football at university, which is a very long-winded answer. Right. No, that's fine. OK, so you started playing football at university. And so where did that journey take you then? Um, that journey... Um, the uh the journey it showed me about playing the sport sporters joy for one all of the other sports i played competitively competitively i loved them in that one i went to join a bunch of players and they basically lost nearly every game the year before and we won the league we won the cup and they made me captain after the first match it was just joyful it was an absolute joyful time and at the end of that first year um I played in a match where a scout came for England universities and he'd come to see somebody else. And then he approached me at the end of the game to see if I would play. And he said afterwards that I should join uh, Millwall. They were the, the team of the moment. And so um, the next season I signed for Millwall and then that took me, took me into kind of ad, the, the, the proper um, leagues. Okay, and were you still at university at this time? Yeah, yes, I was. Okay, yeah. so they were, what were they, semi-pro or completely amateur? It, um, everything was always completely amateur until Fulham went professional with uh, Al-Fayed in the 90s. Oh, well, all of all always. Of football, was always, it? Always completely amateur. Yeah, okay. And, I mean, in the film, obviously there's some themes around the parents not not wanting her to pursue sports especially not seriously um how about you growing up with the badminton you said you were quite good at it did was there any did you feel any kind of um resistance from your parents for you doing that or when you started playing football was there anything or was it the fact that you were away and they they were well not happy but I don't know outside of mine possibly no I mean of course there was always opposition I, I spent all my time playing sports and so I, I was always told that, you know, maybe I needed to calm down with the sport, concentrate on studies. And when I was at university playing for Millwall, um, both the, the head of the university said, said, and my parents did say, maybe it was time now to stop playing football and, and to really focus um, on my education. But what they didn't realise was that um, part of the reason I did so well in my academic studies was because I also had a sport kind of outlet for myself. So there was pressure at university from my parents and from the university to, to sort of stop and focus. Okay. So, and then, so that sounds like there was just resist, I guess, resistance, perhaps a lack of understanding about women's football in general at that time. No, it was about sport and it was about the time. Um, I mean, there's two things. One is the fact that it's seen as a, a male sport. And then the other thing, um, so I think as a, a, certainly as an Indian woman growing up, the, the two sides of opposition, one is the fact that it's a male sport, it's seen as a male sport, but it's only seen as a male sport actually in countries where the men are good. Like in America, New Zealand, it was not seen as a, a, a male sport because the men were not so good at all. So it was a, a female sport. And then the other, the other opposition as an Indian woman is the fact that um, your, your sort of academic life is very important. It, it's seen that you have to really excel and do well if you're going to have the same chances in life. 
So there, there was those two sides, I think, that you face. Okay. And so what, I mean, what did your friends think of you at the time, sort of, and your other, whatever circles you had playing football for? I mean, Millwall is, I guess, well, it's still a professional team, obviously, on the male, on the male side yeah. of it. It, it was it was a big big club at the time, and um, and I suffered a lot of racism at Millwall. Um, it was interesting. I didn't quite. Um, I was bullied when I was at Millwall, and I, I should have left. And I didn't understand why I hadn't left earlier. And I was a part of a, another podcast a few a few months ago, and um, there was an ex footballer I was on with. And he had me in tears when he was talking about his, his stories. I think he played for Crystal Palace. And he was talking about being in the changing room and the racism that was going on around him, the things that were said. And it was only then that I suddenly realised why I hadn't stopped playing for Millwall when I did. I, I, I suffered. Um, I mean, I, I was bullied a lot and I insisted on staying. And part of it is that pig-headedness where you think, um, I have every right to play nobody's going to stop me playing for this club. And actually, there's lots of clubs to play for. And, and when my, my father died at one point, and um, the, the bully lady in the team treated me terribly at the time. And it was only then when they kind of um, were rude about my father that I thought, what am I doing? I have to leave this club. Um, but uh, when, when I think about the... the how I was bullied there. At the time, I hadn't realised until I, he- I heard this other male Asian footballer talking about it, that this feeling that you were absolutely representing your community in a way. There weren't Indian footballers. And um, to feel that you had to just take all of the rubbish, turn up, always turn up on time, always playing super hard, always be a super dedicated player so that they were not going to say anything about other Indian players. There was always this feeling that you, that you just have to put up with it. Um, you have to, you, you are representing your community um, somehow. Um, that wasn't the question you asked me. You asked me what my friends thought of me playing football. To be honest, uh, you've given a much better answer to the question I didn't ask. <laughs> the question. I'm, be, I'm being, I used to answer all of the questions that I was asked and then I became like a politician. I just say what I want to say now. <laughs> But uh, uh, my friends, it was interesting that um, because I, I mean, I, I was, um, I mean, outside of Millwall, I, I was popular with my friends. It was just Millwall, which was, they thought it was kind of cool. And, and I was supported so much by guys because I love playing with guys. And it would be wonderful at the beginning where they don't really pay you much attention. And then you suddenly dribble around them and you score a goal. They were super supportive. Um, okay. Because I think a lot of the times when people, when somebody is not supportive about women's football, they they know nothing about it. So they had they, my male friends had a lot of respect actually. The people that I knew who were my friends, of course, support because they wouldn't be my friends otherwise. I guess. Okay, going so going back to Millwall, if I may. Um, so, I mean, obviously they scouted you and. And they liked you enough to take you on. So wh- when you say you you suffered the bullying and the racism, who was that from? Was that from former players? Was that just in the form It, it of- was from one player, actually, who, in retrospect, when I look, um, 
I, I came at an interesting time at Millwall. They'd been the top team in the country. And then there was lots of internal issues. And the first team, a lot of them had more or less left. Apart from this one player, she was pressured to stay because her father was one of the directors or something. I think she was an unhappy woman. The director of Millwall, who was also, uh, he was called Jeff Burnage. He, he was also at one point the director of the, of the men's team. He, he, he was super nice to me, would take, you know, pick me up because I lived in Southwest London, take me to the training and things. And this woman just, um, in retrospect, she was also not very nice to some other people, but they left. I was the one that stayed. She was just an unhappy player and everybody else was terrified of her. So it was only when I left the club that I realized at the end it'd been one unhappy person who held a lot of power um, in the team. And, and afterwards, the players would be really nice when I would meet them many years later. And they just hadn't enjoyed it. It was one bully. Um, and we're surrounded by a whole load of weak people. Like we would play... Um, we would, they found, I can't remember what game we played, um, which was basically an excuse for them to be able to jump on top of me and kick me. Um, there was lots of verbal abuse all of the time. And I can't believe this I was from the opposition, right? No, this is from my teammates. Okay. It was, uh, no, I mean it was unbelievable when I think that I put up with it at the time. But also, I kind of respect the fact um, that I did, um, and I did meet her a few years ago. It was interesting, and to just look at her and feel a little bit of pity for her because she just looked like a sad person, and I had a very lovely life and I wasn't, and she was just unhappy. Okay, how did how did that meeting go in terms of did you, was there any conversation around the way she she treated you in the past? No, it was interesting because I I was actually I'd met um, Jeff for um, a coffee, um, and then we bumped into her. He was he was he was just sort of dropping me off. I was working, I was consulting at a hospital, and she was there. I think she seemed to, she was just there it, it, it was just like a minute conversation where it suddenly dawned on me who she was and I said oh hello and they spoke and and off she went and Jeff said that was really very cool you actually just don't give a damn about her and I thought well why would I she means nothing I didn't hold any anger I didn't hold anything she was an unhappy person she made my life hell um but then I left and had a super career and everything was fine Cool. Okay. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, at the time, so I'm, I'm guessing. Well, there wouldn't have been very many Asian females playing either. No. Um, was there a lot of black women playing football at the time as well? More so. Yeah. Yeah. More so. I think it, one of the interesting things about women's football, the sort of different levels of um, when you're. At, all, all the discrimination that's going on. If if people aren't really accepting women's football, we're not. We're ultimately not really bothered if you've got if there's a black woman or an Asian woman or whatever. We're just at the, at the minute we're all grouped together, and then there are people who are saying, "Well, women shouldn't play football. They don't care where you're from. Women shouldn't be playing football." They, they weren't being so specific as to them, sort of. So, so that was never a thing in women's football, to be honest, about race. Okay, we were women. That was bad enough. 
Okay. And so, I mean, well, I'll ask the question anyway. In terms of the opposition or fans, was was there any kind of, I mean, well, I don't know, actually. And women's football, first of all, in men's football, it's very aggressive. The fans are aggressive. They're trying to put off the other team. And obviously, sometimes they go to a level which you, you'd you hope they wouldn't on the street, etc. I mean, you hope they wouldn't in football, mm. but they do anyway. How, how's, how, first of all, how is, how is women's football in that regard? Is there as much aggression from the fans? <laughs> if... If there had been fans turning up to play, there might have been. I don't know. I mean, it was women's football. But when I was playing, we didn't. You had a man and his dog. You had some parents turn up. We didn't have all, all of that. You know, it was it was a softer time. <laughs> no, so uh, no, we didn't really have that. I think. I mean, I, I suppose it. I think when you're fighting in your own little way to be accepted. We were all a minority. Women footballers were a minority. When it's all accepted, when it's all accepted and there's lots of money in the game and it's just established, then you can start getting a different kind of hierarchy in it. And, and that. But at the time when I was playing, we just didn't have. I didn't feel that. And okay, I, I had some... Um, they're a little bit racist at, at Millwall. But then when I think back to it, they were bullying other players. This woman was bullying other players, but they left. And so whenever, and so she was just a nasty person. So then, of course, with me, you could, you could pull out a racist comment now and again. But it wasn't about her being racist. It was about her being not a nice person. Yeah, get that. Okay, and then so after Millwall, where did your journey take you? Um, then it took me to Chelsea, because I, when I left Millwall, I really thought, have I got no pride in myself that I let players treat me like this? Then that took me to Chelsea, which was the best team I played for. I had the most wonderful time. And then after Chelsea, I think I just suddenly was getting to the point where I thought, I mean, I love playing football, but it's a commitment as well. And I was at university, and, and then I was working, and then I want to have... you know have my weekends, not have so much commitment, not have to travel as far as I will travel. And so then I decided to join Fulham, which to me was, I was always, I was then like taking myself out of the most competitive. And then the interesting thing was at the point where I was, I I ultimately became professional, but everything was sort of during my exit. And it's funny when I've been asked about going professional and about, how I almost as if it was a build up to go professional, and uh, and it was the exact opposite for me. I I was really sort of heading out of the game and heading out to stop playing, and and in retrospect, I think if I'd have ever tried to be a professional footballer, I I never would have um, got there. I would have done the wrong things. I think I would have tried to do what I think you should do to be a professional footballer. What do you mean by that? Um, but did you not think so what I did there I thought I would set you up for your next question <laughs> okay I've missed it what's what should my next question be no, 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 that's why I did I thought I could either have a very long answer or I can just get I thought I thought he's here to interview me I'll prompt I'll prompt <laughs> 
I'm sorry, we're we're amateurs. <laughs> so, um, so, so your question was there, Apu, was that, so how did you become a professional footballer? So how did you end up becoming a professional footballer? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> so I was actually about to give up. I was playing for Fulham and... Um, I, rem- I just wanted to be able to go away for weekends and things. And then I'd gone off snowboarding one weekend and I came back. And of course, you're going to be a substitute because you went to training. And I, I came on, played a bit of football. And I thought, you know, this, this is going to be my last year. I'm really, I just play with friends now. And then that was going to be my last season. And then I went to the Asian Mega Mella in Birmingham. It was the very first one that they had. That was in 1999, I think. And, um, and that was an interesting experience. They wanted me, I was asked to play in a, like a, a celebrity-ish charity football match. And it was interesting when I went to this Mega Mella because I remember feeling um, a way I'd never felt before, a, a different kind of relaxedness. And, it, and I, I realized I went with my mentor teacher, a white teacher, and she commented that she wasn't used to being in the minority. And it was interesting. I suddenly realized that's why I feel so at ease. I've never not been a minority. So we played this match and um, Jazz Baines was there. He was writing a book about Bai Chung Butchia. He was going to come, oh no, they were doing a movie, they were doing a documentary about Bai Chung Butchia, who was a captain of India at the time. He was going to come and play in England. And then they thought it would be interesting if we had the flip side, where I would go to India and, 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 and play there. And um, actually, I had my most favourite football game ever there. This, I'm just throwing this in because it's one of my favourite stories. So there was, this, there was this little court. You could play three-a-side football. And um, I was with my brother and sister, and we hadn't played football since we were kids. So we said, we've got to go and have a little three-a-side a three here. So we went up and said, can we play? And the guy said, yeah, 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 you can go on next. You can play these guys. And there were three sort of 19-year-olds standing together. And they looked at us like, oh, that they were going to play a match with us. And it was fabulous. We went on and we said to my brother, you go and go. And I don't know what happened. We were like, my, my sister and me, we were like um, the Juhuti sisters. We were the Charlton brothers. Didn't matter what we did. Well, you kicked the ball. It went to the other player. Within a few minutes, it was about six or seven nil. These guys suddenly got really, really competitive. And we wouldn't let my brother out of goal because we're saying, no, you, you're going to spoil it. It was an absolute role reversal. It was my favourite match I've ever played. So, but, so that was that. And then Jazz Baines, they wanted to do this documentary. So then I had to keep playing for one more season because they wanted this documentary. But then dealing with India is never so easy because I was supposed to go to India and play in the Southeast Asia Games or something. So, I mean, I've, if I've got to go, it's going to take some planning, some time. And I would ring up, say, you know, w- what's the plan? When should I go? And they would say, oh, come next week if you want. I said, yeah, but where am I going to go? How long am I going to go for? I had so many leaving parties. They would say, oh, come next week. No, 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 come next week, come next week. And then I was playing a match on the weekend. 
and and I thought I'm gonna have to stop this. This has been going on for a month, and and I'm playing this match, and I got a hospital ball. Um, it was an FA Cup match. Got a hospital ball. I went flying in. It was a one-on-one with a goalkeeper. I shouldn't really have gone for it. She came in flying in with both feet, and she ended up rupturing my duodenum. But we didn't realise at the time. So then I went to hospital. They thought everything was fine. I went back home. Um, they, um, luckily, my best friend stayed with me. And then I got rushed back to hospital, and they said another two hours I would have been dead. So I'm lying on a hospital bed, and they're going to whisk me off to surgery. And I remember thinking, okay, I don't know what's going on. Clearly, I, I could tell something was seriously wrong. And um, having to question the fact whether it was okay if I was there, and I didn't know whether I will wake up or not. And, um, and I remember thinking that I'm going to be really annoyed because I shouldn't have been playing football. I wanted to stop. This damn documentary thing came on. And um, I remember thinking, actually, it was fine. I chose everything. I had... I wanted to play. I played. Everything is fine. So then, I mean, of course, the ending was, of course, that I lived and everything was fine. But I was terrified. I was terrified when I came out of hospital. It being um, the surgeon had said it was a one in a million accident. I was super lucky. I needed to appreciate that. And then um, I got whisked back to hospital at one point after a week of being at home. And then I came back and my football club, Fulham, had telephoned me. And I hadn't spoken to them at all. And then um, I called them back. And I thought I'd been a bit of a hero because really, I really had been close to death. And they were telephoning me because they wanted, to take, they wanted me to give my, hand my gear back so they could pass it on. So basically, they were calling to ask for the tracksuit back because they didn't think I'd ever play again. And I'd never wanted to play again. I'd been meaning to quit. I'd gone back for this India thing. I'd had this accident. And at that moment, I thought, okay, um, they can have their tracksuit back, but I will decide that I will never play football again. Um, so then I went on this re, just this mission of rehab. And so the first, I mean, I, I couldn't really eat. And I started off on the first day taking a record, two spoonfuls of porridge. I go back to bed and I start crying in pain. The next day I had three spoonfuls and sat up for five minutes. And day by day, I built it up. And um, it was absolutely liberating because I, I, I've grown up competing, competing to be better than somebody else because you have to, you're judging all of the time. And so I started at that point, really at a bottom, and I, I've never competed against anybody since because all I had to do was be better than I was the day before. And I wanted to have one match back, and I came back to play a match I scored a goal in basically exactly the same setup. Ball goes through. I go flying on the floor, but this time the goalie didn't get me. Scored a goal. I spent the next five minutes in tears on the pitch. Um, and it was a game of my life because I wasn't playing for anybody. I wasn't trying to impress anybody. I really couldn't give a damn. It was for me. My, as far as I was concerned, my club didn't deserve anything from me. I was getting up to just say to everybody, I can play. Now I don't want to. And, and then I got offered a professional football contract after that game because that's when they that were. Fulham. Yeah, that was at a time when Al Fayed had decided he was going to invest money in. And I remember at the time, and I thought, I really don't want to play football. But also, it just felt it was, um, it was, a, it, it was a history thing. There had been no professional women's teams. And I just thought, we have such a responsibility 
th there are no professional women's sports teams. And, and we have to really represent not just women in football, but, but women athletes somehow. So I went from deciding I was going to play one match and never, ever play a game to then doing professional football. But had, which is, and I did it because I wasn't trying to second guess what I should be trying to be something that I thought I, I should be. I really couldn't give a damn. It was about me being better than I was yesterday, um, which is what I mean. If I'd have tried, if I'd have wanted to be a professional footballer, I would have had a different approach, I think. Okay. Um, so how long, so I knew about the injury. So how long did you continue to play for from that point? This was 99, 2000, is that right? Yeah, that was, yeah. Uh, well, I did, because I was doing a PhD at the time. I did the professional for one year. I didn't want to do it anymore because it was interesting being a professional. As soon as something is your job, it, it, there's something magical which is lost about why you're doing something. And also, I... I it, it was never a dream. It was a privilege to do for a year. But I, I had my life. I, I had my profession and my career. So I did it for the year. I went back to Chelsea. Not, I went, no, I, yeah, I think I went back to Chelsea for half a season. And then I just decided I just want to play with my friends for fun. It felt like that chapter was done. Certainly, because also after my accident, it I needed to complete it. I needed to own my football again. And then I did that. And then I was just ready to move on to a new chapter. Cool. So you did one more year and then yeah. retired from professional football, right? Yeah, and then just played for fun. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how, how, when and how did the Bend It Like Beckham thing come about? Actually, no, before I ask that, so were you... Did you, you've mentioned before about representing the community, etc. Yeah. Um, and you've talked about Jazz Baines. So a couple of years before that, he'd written uh, Corner Flags and Corner yeah. Shops. And a yeah, couple yeah. of years corner before flags, that, flags, yeah. done the report, Asians can't play football. Um, yeah. So did you feel, so you said during, whilst you were playing, especially whilst you were in Millwall, you felt like you were representing the community. Did you feel generally... As an Asian female footballer, that you were representing Asians and leading uh, a path for others. Um, when I when I was getting any racist abuse, I was representing my community. When I was doing the professional, I was representing women because it was the first female club. So I really saw that as we are representing women in sport. Okay. I'm just wondering if, because we've had the Mel, well, you talked about the Meller and Jazz Baines, etc. Sort of him selecting you for, to do this documentary. I know, I'm assuming the documentary, nothing ever came of it. No, because what happened was, there was two things. There was the documentary and then these cameras would turn up. And I've got a cycle to football training. I've got a car in front of me. They've got the, hey, it wasn't me. And then you turn up at tra training. Everybody's your best friends. They're speaking to you in ways. And I mean, they were nice at Fulham, but everything was so fakey. And I just had this image of turning up in India and they've assembled all of my family. And this fakey fake, I just, I couldn't stand it. I'm not a TV person. I, and then I said to them, I really 
don't think I'm I'm somebody for TV. I can't have these cameras. I find it. I just I, I didn't like it. So I said I didn't want to do that, but I was happy to carry on with the India thing. No, so I asked. It, I just couldn't stand it. These cameras following you around and everybody with big smiles. It's. I just yeah. It wasn't for me. I was shyer in those days. Okay, and so did. Was any did anyone you I don't mean use you in a bad way, but did anyone use you as I mean at the moment the FA, for instance, I'm not sure if you're aware, they've got certain role models that they have. They're trying to increase um mm. participation, both female and Asian participation in football, etc. And they're using it, one of their tactics is to have role models, etc. Were were you ever Asked to do that? Did you do that for anyone else? I know the Jazz yeah, Bay's documentary FIFA, FIFA contacted me. I was a, an ambassador for FIFA um, briefly. Oh, and what yeah. did that involve? That involved going to New Zealand for some workshops um, and Fiji. Uh, I mean, I like that side of work, actually. Um, and I believe in that side, the whole role models thing, I think is very important to be able to, I, I had nobody to look up to, which is why I never dreamed of being a professional footballer. There weren't any. So, um, um, yes, yeah, so I did it for, but then I'd, I'd moved, I'd moved here. So I get asked to do talks and things. Whenever I'm asked to do anything around football, I do. But um, apart from FIFA, I don't think I've done anything for the effort. I can't remember. I don't think so. Okay, fair enough. So back to Bendy Light Beckham. How did um, Hadi Garinda come into your life? That's when I was at Fulham. As a making... pro or before you turned pro? I'm assuming that was a couple of years in the making the film anyway. Yeah, no, it was. So she approached us. She came. I met her. Um... Yes, so she was she was writing the script at the time, and then I met her, and then yes, I was at Fulham because in the end, my teammates were in the movie as the opposition and things, right? And it was a professional team, so, so it had been around then, I think, yeah. Okay, and what? How much input did you have in in the on the script and? Well, we just, I mean, we, we, we just sat and spoke a lot about themes, the themes of, of, of what it was. Um, and it, it, because it's not, it, it's, 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 it's just a, a generic theme in the end. You want to do something, parents don't want you to, everything comes good, everybody's happy. We fly off into the distance. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so we just we just spoke a lot about our, our, our lives and the themes. I wasn't there saying, well, he should say this now. Yeah. And then she should say this. And, um, yeah. Okay. And what did you think of the film? At the beginning, I hated it because it, it just felt so... Um, because, because the themes are the same, but... You put them all together in a movie and it's so... It, you can't get the depth of real life. And you, we pick major incidents in life. It's like when... Um, 
life is the, the most significant things in life are often the little things but what we remember are the big when you plant your flag in the ground something big happens it's like when you ask somebody their favorite ma- football match and they're supposed to tell you about some cup final some big thing that everybody can relate to but the significant things in life are the small things which aren't worthy of a big report somehow so at the beginning i didn't like it but then i had to go around and talk about it a lot and it was um suddenly seeing how um it had helped other people to be able to speak about things and to see the impact it had on young women. Um, to, to see it's because obviously at the beginning, I'm going to take it personally and think, well, it's not, it wasn't really like that and life's not really like that. And I'm, I'm going to critique it a lot because I'm going to take it too personally. But then when I took myself out of the picture and saw the impact it had, um, then of course it was completely different. Cool. And how often do you get asked about it nowadays? Um, people do ask me a lot. Um, and I, I try to change the subject a lot. <laughs> but because it's, um, because it comes down, or it's, I mean, it's the point I just made. Um, life is about tiny little, it's, it's the little things, which are the significant things. And... Um, um so we yeah so i i think there are things that you can speak about but they might they may not be the most impactful significant thing in your life and the the little things so um no but i mean the, the good thing about it is cause i do have to speak um a lot to women and, and 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 young girls and it's a good starting point to talk cool. about stuff and life and difficulties Okay, so are you still involved in football? I'm still involved in that I get, um, I not, I don't coach anybody. I, I get involved, somehow this like mentory type thing. There is an event that was supposed to happen last year and it, it was about helping ethnic minorities in Switzerland get um, access to sport. So I'm kind of a face of that, a speaker for that. I get asked to do things like that, but um, I, for a long time, I must admit, I felt very guilty that I wasn't staying in sport because I, I like the mentoring aspect. I think it, you can have a big impact on people, but I had to make a choice. Either I could become a professional footballer and then spend the rest of my life talking about that time of my life, or I could go on and do more interesting and more diverse things and keep going off. And I decided that that was more important for me because um, I wanted to play football. I didn't say I wanted to be a professional footballer. Sport was super interesting. It was super um, important for me. But I wanted to live a full life. And, um, And... it wasn't going to be my 100%. It was such a big part of my life. But just like with all of us, sometimes we're fighting to do things, and that's not the, th- the only thing in life we ever want to do. It's a thing, and it's a time, and it's super important, and then we're supposed to move on up and do other things. And I decided that I wanted, when I do speak, to be able to show and to speak about the importance of sport, how it took a little kid who was super shy and could hardly speak 
Um, the strength it gave me, it allowed me to become a professional footballer. It allowed me to, to go off and do this. It gave me the strength to stop the science, become an artist, to stop this, do that. And um, how it's allowed me to live. And um, I decided to show, life is about many different things. And, I, and I'm also, I care more about access to sport as opposed to we need to become professional footballers. I just happened to become a professional footballer, but that was also accidentally. For me, it was always about having the opportunity to do all of these different things in life. So I, I do sometimes think, I, I, I feel that I, I should have done more within sport for young girls, but also I didn't want to be the person that, so you went off and you became a professional footballer and then you stopped and then you just took a sidestep and spoke about that over and over and over again. It was important to show, yes, you do this and then you do something else and then you can do something completely different. And um, so that's why I chose to do that. Okay. And you, you spoke about access to sport. Um, we've also interviewed, I don't know if you know, Arun Chowdhury, who's based in Germany. He's been involved in quite a lot of Indian football. Yes, and I'm we, sure I had something to do with him a while ago. And we're talking to him about, because the, the issue we've got here in Britain is that we make up, we as in Asians, make up a yeah. sizable chunk of the population. Yeah. And we're underrepresented, underrepresented. Why can I say that today? Ah. I, know, I know what you mean. <laughs> There's not enough of us playing football. Um, or yeah. not professionally anyway. And and then we, we look deeper into it and we see there are issues, etc. Yeah. And Arun, interestingly, didn't seem to think, though, that issues like that would occur in Germany. What's your experience in Switzerland? You're saying you're working on projects with ethnic minorities there. Um, whereabouts do they sit on the scale? So you, so you said that Aaron said those problems don't happen in Germany, or he didn't think they would happen in Germany. I think I think he said he because the, the the Asian population in Germany is very very small. Yeah. Um, but he seems to think for several reasons, partly to do with how they treat Turkish immigrants and the few other immigrants they have. He doesn't think that they've got that issue with mm. ethnic minorities being either underrepresented or facing barriers to enter sport. But, so, but also, so, but what are the conclusions about the barriers for Asians in the UK, though? Because when we look at the percentage of, of, the pop, of Asians within the professional game, so that's one number if we extrapolate out just to how we are in the population... But what about participants and things? I mean, a very small percentage of anybody makes it to become a professional footballer. Um, I, I just wonder when we look at these, because it's interesting for me to know as well that um, it's a big gamble, whoever you are, white English guy trying to be a professional footballer. It's, I mean, you've got a very tiny chance anyway um so it's a big gamble to go into that it, i i I'm, I'm really interested in the numbers before we get to professional as well how many people go in out of that percentage what are the numbers that that um succeed there, and, have, there uh, have been some studies um and i know for instance boys of bangladeshi and pakistani origin 
they play football as a percentage. There's a much greater number of them play football than any other ethnic makeup in the UK, including blacks and whites. Mm-hmm. Um, for different kinds of Asians, that might reduce a little. But I mean, in this country, football is the national game. If anyone's going to play a sport, the chances are it's going to be football. Yeah. Um, so they they do play. I th- I mean, there's there's so many issues. That's why one of the reasons we've got the podcast. This is, mm-hmm. I think we've published 24, 25 episodes and we're still going strong because there's different facets to it. So one facet, for instance, is that anecdotally, I think we'd all agree, like the, me, Kevin and Z, that if you ever go down to the local five-side pitches, you will see, especially in London, you will see majority of the pitches will, will have Asians playing football yeah, yeah. in there. But then Kevil, who's involved in the semi-pro game, will tell you that there that's that's not reflected in the semi-pro game. There's a lot less Asians that are involved in there. Mm. It's it's dangerous though to look at to look at the um the five aside pitches or the Sunday league pitches because and I I know Permi will probably attest to this as well, but when you go into a professional environment or you go into a pro club, the mindset the environment, the coaching, the way of life, it's completely different to what you face on the five-a-side pitch. And you can't, we can't sit here as Asians talking about the game saying, well, we account for 7% of the population. Therefore, based on the number of people participating, we should have X amount of percent playing in the pro game. There are, no, there are a number of factors which influence the conversion rate of Sunday League Academy footballers to pros. And I've seen loads of academy players now or more than when I was playing. I was probably one of maybe five at the time when I was playing who are of Asian heritage. There's far more that, than, there, than there were previously now. There's loads of Asian players coming through the systems. But now the challenge for us is how do we help those individuals turn professional? Is it a mindset thing? Is it an economics thing? Is it a culture thing? We need to identify these issues and because we don't truly, we can't sit here and say we truly understand the issues because we don't. There's not been enough research. There's not been enough conversations about these things. So just having the discourse that we are now will reach people and there, there will be a time lag associated with it. But later down the line, once we understand the issue holistically, then we can seriously start pushing Asians into the game properly and get them to that professional stage where they can make good money, have influence, and have the same same level of status as black players and white players. I think that was really well put, because we can't just stick numbers, a percentage here and a percentage there, because so much goes on in the middle. And I don't think we understand enough where people are not getting in and the barriers they're facing. Mm. I mean, in, in so in terms of answering that question, which I think we have, is that, do Asians play sport and do they play football? Yes. Do they play it enough? I think there are, like Kevin said, there are lots of factors that, to be honest, I mean, it's not just Asians. There's everyone could probably, like any ethnicity, sorry, could probably play more sport and probably should play more sport because we know health is deteriorating. We know obesity is in- increasing, etc. Um but so it's so yeah, it was just curious as to what your the main issues, if you're able to identify them, are in Switzerland that there is a need for someone to talk about ethnic minorities and their sport participation. You know, I think it's just um, 
because I don't, I just look at, I, I don't look at the professional track. And, and you really have to be in a professional track from a very young age. Um, I mean, kids, when I look at FC Basel, how, the, how young you are when you're in the system to be heading up to one day possibly make it through to the academies. And, and, and I don't think we would get there for a few generations anyway, because you have to have a parent that has a mindset that their four-year-old, five-year-old kid they're going to send off to start training uh, for football. I suppose I care more for about the accessibility thing and for kids to be able to play. And again, I think um, I just always figured that through the generations it would change. My parents didn't go out and play sports. They didn't have time for fun. There was other things to be doing. As you, know, as you go through the generations, and it's more of a normal thing for your, for your parents also to encourage you to do. So I always expected us to lag behind, in a way, a generation or two. So it doesn't, it, given your background, it doesn't really matter if you're, in a, if you're in a different country what anybody else is doing. It's what, it's what your family's used to, what they're going to encourage you to do. So I always expected us to have this kind of lag um, in a way. And for me, it is about... And, and the communities here, where the kids aren't playing so much sport, and I suppose that's why they're trying to do the mentory things, where it's about showing... Um, in, you know, in, intelligent young people who play sport, it's not a threat. It's not a threat to your education or whatever, understanding the fears that, that the parents have. Um, but it's just a multitude of things as to why people don't get involved. Um, I'm not sure I can give you a good answer to that, but I thought Kevin was really good. No, I was, was going to actually just add on to that as well, that what we're seeing now with the abundance of articles that are coming out is the the mental side of the game as well has a huge impact on people's mental health. So, for example, a number of players have come out and spoken about the environment and the culture in football and the impact that's having on mental health. And Mm. this might be a generalisation, and Apu, please forgive me, because it probably is. But if I'm an Asian parent now and I'm thinking about the welfare of my child, why on earth would I want to send them into a professional club where they have less than a 0.001% chance of making a career out of it and also knowing that they're probably going to have long-term psychological scars after playing the game at that level. I still, I still have trauma from, yeah. from my time in academy football. In fact, the relationship that I had with my manager prevented me for several years having proper conversations with management at semi-pro clubs in the future. So if I'm a parent, why on earth would I send my child into, into the academy system knowing full well what it's going to do for them? And it's these sort of things that we have to consider as Asians as well in our culture, we are historically known to safeguard our children from, from any form of trauma. We are very um, protectionist in our upbringing, and that comes from our Eastern heritage. It's the same with, with Asian and Japanese um, parents. They're very protective of their children, and that leads to Japanese um, children's career choices and what they, the careers that they tend to go into. So the way that you're brought up and the way that your culture is has a huge impact on the career choices that you make. And in turn, that impacts the perception that Asians have of football in the environment. So there, again, it goes back to that argument. There's a number of factors that are preventing or are stopping Asians entering the game. And we would be naive or silly to just assume that race was the only factor. 
And when you take race out of the equation, what you do is you open this door up to so many other factors. I'm not set, sitting here saying that race is, racism doesn't exist in football. It does. And I've, I've lived it just like all of us here at some point in our, in our lives. What we're saying is, is we can't keep emphasizing race all the time. We need to look at other factors around race, which are preventing us from getting there too. And then as soon as we appreciate and understand those factors, that gives us the best possible opportunity to break the system. Very well said. And, and when I was playing with um, Fulham, we had some uh, Norwegian players and they were shocked at the changing room culture. The way people would speak to each other, that would never happen in their game. And when I started playing here in Basel, I have to say it was... I mean, you're playing in a competitive environment. Mm. It is not like another job. You are, Yes, they're your teammates, and it'd be great if we all loved each other and wanted everybody to be the best, but you're fighting for your place week in, week out. There's, there's going to be stress. But the culture here in Basel, again, completely different. And so forget about race. Um, the, the changing room environment, um, it, actually, it can be quite horrible. So forget about race. I understand why would you want your, your kid going into that kind of environment? And, and when we're talking about being protective, I don't think it's also a cultural thing. It depends on your own experiences. And I know I've not been very good at talking about Bendit Like Beckham, but if I go back <laughs> to Bendit Like Beckham, my favourite scene. So, so why does the father not want his daughter to play football? Because he's trying to protect her. Because he thinks about when he wanted to be a part of the cricket team, when, when, he, when he came to the country and how he was rejected. He doesn't want his daughter being made to feel like that. That, for me, was the most powerful. Um, every time I watched it, I'm in tears um, of, of that. When people say they don't want us to do something, your parents are trying to protect you. And so it's, and I don't think it's just because from Eastern cultures, it's to do with our own experience. So when you've suffered racism, you've come to the country, you have not been accepted. You've been treated badly. You want to protect your kids from It's that, that idea, isn't it? We avoid what we're scared of. And parents have a tendency mm. to instill that into us. And that leads us to behave in a certain way where mm. we avoid situations where they felt uncomfortable in the past. I mean, my, my mum and dad used to tell me about going into pubs in the in the 70s and the 80s where you weren't allowed to go and sit in the pub. You had to get your pint and sit outside and drink. So they never used to go to pubs and they were scared for me when I got old enough to go to a pub with my mates. I'm, obviously, times have changed now, but, you know, that there's... Yeah, but how do they know? They, they don't know. When I, got, um, uh, when I got married, I married um, an English guy, which, of course, caused lots of problems in uh, my community. And at the wedding, um, my father had died at this point. There was only... Two other families that came, uh, Indian families, they both disowned their own daughters in the past because of this arranged marriage issue. I had the biggest Bollywood wedding. We had 60 of us had learned two Bollywood tracks. We danced and the Indian families afterwards. And it was, it was super sad when they said to me, they, they couldn't believe how life had moved on. They would try this whole arranged marriage thing, the whole stress of if my daughter goes off with an um, English boy, we're going to disown her, reject her. It was always fear. Everything was fear. These families, they couldn't believe how their culture was being celebrated by all of these white people. They were all wearing Indian clothes. They were dancing. They were celebrating. They didn't realize life had changed. They had their own experiences, and they were trying to protect their children from what they had to go through, and that's completely understandable. 
Fantastic. So, Permi, the the women's game has obviously changed dramatically now. Well, it has in England. I'm not sure what it's like in in Switzerland. There's there's mm-hmm. now two professional divisions here, etc. Um, what do you think? Can I? I mean, just to finish off, I'd just like to really ask you: What do you think would need needs to happen for? for the women's game to be taken, I guess, perhaps a little bit more seriously. Yeah, so what do you think of the women's game and how, how is it in Switzerland as well? Oh, it's good. One of the rules that I like here, there is no segregation by age. Well, maybe it's later. It's um, kid, the girls, the best, the best players play together. So if you're a girl and you're good enough to be in the best team, then you're good enough to be in the best team. And so you get some, which is amazing for the development. You only, you only um, split the players when they're not good enough. Because, of course, um, boys start to then develop um, differently. But um, um, for developing, it's, I don't like comparing always to the men's game. I think we're getting better coverage. People just have to see. I like watching women's football. Because there's no there's no rolling around play acting rubbish. We play for, and a lot of my friends had said that as well. Something was strange, and then they suddenly realised there's none of that crap. They're just watching a game of football. You can't force force as many people to want to watch women's football as do men. I want to watch the best sport. We're gonna and um, so I think if we stopped comparing it things. To the men's game all of the time just give it good coverage there is there is a market people always care about money there's clearly a market they could do something um i think i think it is getting better I, i'm not somebody that suddenly thinks that we should just everything should be suddenly the same because and so I, I think the coverage gets better every year. More money goes goes into it. At the end of the day, people care about money. Loads of money gets thrown in the Premier League because it's making loads of money. And um, I think the women's game, it is improving. It clearly is. And so I think we should appreciate the steps that we're making instead of looking at um, how much men are getting paid and this is happening, so we should be exactly the same because I, I think you're on a, a road to nowhere when you go um, down there. I think it is improving and I prefer to celebrate the fact that we are making steps. Then I think, then I think you have more chance of making steps. Fantastic. Okay, one last question from me just for anyone who hasn't seen you play and I'm one of those people. If you had to compare yourself to a footballer that we'd all know, who would you compare yourself oh, to? Who would I be? So who would I be? Actually, because I clearly don't watch football anymore, can I describe what I was like as a footballer? <laughs> yeah, and then you tell me who I was. So I was, I was, so I like to be in the middle. I'm, I was fit. So left, right, whatever. Um, I'd be everywhere. And I'm a team player. Um, I, I like to take the ball past uh, and move. I, I'm not. I'm not the dribbly, but I'm the one that will be every, everywhere. And I, and I like to be in the middle so I can go left, right. So I'll be up there attacking, and then I'll be back there. Um, who, who am I? Who's goals? 
hey, I like Scott. You know what? No, you're so right. I am Paul. Yes. That's why he was one of my favorites. I remember coming back from a match and, and I had, there was a song about Paul Scholes, Paul Scholes, Paul Scholes, Paul Scholes, 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 or something. I'd been watching Man United in, they had an FA Cup final against Arsenal in Cardiff. Yeah. Millennium Stadium, yeah. Yes, so I, I, I was there with my Arsenal friend. He'd got tickets. I've got an Arsenal shirt. But afterwards, I couldn't go back with him to London. I had to go to Manchester because I was spending the night in Manchester. And I was on this train. I walked onto a train. It was a Manchester United train. And I walked on. They'd lost. They got beat 1-0. And I walked on. And this guy said, are you taking the piss, love? You get on this train, we're going to rape you. And I said, no, you won't. And I walked on. And um, he was just blah, blah. I don't know. I must admit, I don't know. I could have run off. I said, no, you won't. No, you won't. And he was. He was just speaking. And I went on. And, and then I sat down. And there was one point where the police all left at the next station. They stopped. It's like the police were on as, as the train started. And then five minutes later, it's like they made this emergency stop so the police could scarp her. And then... At one point, you know when you have two trains going parallel to each other? And you're going in the same direction, but it's weird because one's going slower than faster than the other. And it was all Arsenal fans. So everybody, all the Man United fans, they ran to the windows and they were banging on the windows and they were all chanting. And then I stood up behind them. And like I was pointing at my Arsenal shirt <laughs> to the people that were in the other train. And they were bashing this train to bits and they were singing all of these songs. And for three days, I was just, I had Paul Scholes, he's called Scholes. I don't know where this story was going, but you didn't. But you just reminded me. But, uh, and actually, but I, I was there in my Arsenal shirt and somehow I knew nothing was going to happen. If I'd have been a guy, maybe it would have been different. But it's like, I mean, when I walked on that, uh, the train and the guy said, we're going to rape you, you get on this train. I said, no, you won't. And I just walked past him. So it was weird. I felt completely safe. But also, I understand, as I told you that story, that also, also it wasn't such good behaviour from them. But it was, it was, <laughs> but it was also weird because I just felt that I know football people, they won't do anything. Mm. I, and, I to just, I, and I could just look at them. And I mean, my, my ex used to hate, hate football fans because they would always, you know, because they would shout and say, and he, he thought they were like yobs. And I would get on a train and there would be football fans and he, and he would just turn away. And then I would just walk up and say, oh, excuse me. And then they would stop and say, yes, love. I said, have you got the time? Go, oh, sorry, love. And they'd be really polite. And I could just, I would look at them differently. But I see how a lot of people get very, very intimidated. And... Um, yeah, I'm not sure what where that story went. You can cut that story from everything. No, it's fine. It's fascinating. Um, Permi, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on, and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. And yeah, Kevin, I thought you made some super lovely points. By the way, that was I, I really thought you were um, super articulate. And why do you not get him to speak more? Because <laughs> I don't agree with anything he says. That's why. <laughs> you should say um yeah you should interview him that's just my final point yeah <laughs> thank I, you i have to i have to go shopping i've got a barbecue later and uh i need to go and get some food and people no worries are... listen if you if you want to hear more of kevil he has his own podcast so i want to hear more of kevil we'll, we'll send you we'll send you the details please kevil, do. quickly tell yes. us the name of your podcast and then i'll, I'll end this conversation uh, it's called the Goalkeeper's Mindset Podcast. So I have a different pro on every week. 
who I speak to about mindset and psychology. And I basically teach the goalkeeping population or the goalkeepers union how to apply psychology to their game. That sounds very interesting. And now it makes more sense as to why you were so articulate. This is not the first time you've, uh, you speak. Yes. Uh, I appreciate it, that. It was very nice to meet you all. Have a lovely day. Thank you very much, Bermie. All right, then. Bye-bye.